Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Here's a little snippet by one of the authors from the anthology. My name is Shannon Lee, and I'm thrilled to have contributed to Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. My essay is called The Anchor and the Seabird, and what I really don't have time for is stress. It it doesn't mean I don't have stress. It just means I don't have time for stress. Joshua Henkin is the author of Morningside Heights. Joshua is the author also of novels Swimming Across the Hudson, a Los Angeles Times notable book, Matrimony, a New York Times notable book, and The World Without You, winner of the 2012 Edward Lewis Wallant Award for Jewish American Fiction and a finalist for the 2012 National Jewish Book Award. His short stories have been published widely, cited for distinction in Best American Short Stories, and broadcast on NPR's Selected Shorts. He lives in Brooklyn, New York, and directs the MFA program in fiction writing at Brooklyn College. Welcome, Joshua. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Morningside Heights. Thank you, Zibby. I'm really happy to be here. I should have just, like, you know, headed over to the west side to... (laughs) film this over there. I'm on the Upper East Side now, but you know, close enough. This book was so beautiful. I mean, I know you know you're a great writer because you're super accomplished, but reading this book was like, oh wow, this is great writing. So it's very refreshing. Not refreshing. I read great writing all the time, but like it's very exciting and awesome when you open up a book and all of a sudden you realize it's like fantastically written and you don't want to stop reading it. So I was really delighted. That's, let me just say that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Would you mind telling listeners a bit about what your book is about? Sure. So Morningside Heights is about a long marriage between an eminent Shakespeare scholar at Columbia and his girlfriend, then his wife. And she meets him in the 1970s when she's his student and is pursuing a doctorate herself. And then she ends up giving up her career and becoming the wife of an academic. And they have a child and he has a child from a previous marriage. And so it's a mixed family. And then about 30 years later, when he's in his late 50s, he starts to become forgetful 
and he is diagnosed with early Alzheimer's. And so the book is really about how the people who love him, his family, his friends, his colleagues, cope with the, the decline of a great man. And I noticed in the acknowledgments you said you had said goodbye to your dad, and I was wondering if this, if your dad had Alzheimer's or where, if this was a personal story. I mean, where did it come from? Yeah. You know, I like to say that all good fiction has to be emotionally autobiographical in the sense that the writer has to be emotionally on the line. And if there's no emotion for the writer, there's going to be no emotion for the reader. So my books, some of them are more narrowly autobiographical. Some are, are less narrowly autobiographical, but they're all emotionally autobiographical. And this one was inspired by my father. My father was a well-known professor at Columbia. He taught at, Columbia. He taught at the law school for 50 years. And like Spence, he eventually developed Alzheimer's. Fortunately, if you can ever say, use the word fortunately about Alzheimer's, he developed it much later than Spence did in his mid to late 80s. But he was still teaching at Columbia at the time, which is a story in its own right. But in some ways, I was most interested in telling the story from his wife Prue's perspective. And this is also inspired by my own family. So when my father started to decline, my mother went to a caregiver's class at the Jewish Community Center on the Upper West Side. And this sort of surprised me because my mother is not a consorting with strangers kind of person. She doesn't go in for self-help groups. And so I was interested in what what happened to her that she felt she'd find comfort in the company of people whom she might not have had anything else in common with aside from the fact that they are caregivers. And so the book started out really as a long, short story that took place at the JCC between Prue and a bunch of friends she meets at the JCC. But then over the course of eight, you know, I spent eight years on this novel and I wrote 3,000 pages. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I'm very inefficient. <laughs> but um, yeah, so 90% of what I wrote is gone. But, you know, after draft seven or eight, I realized that the book was not really about Prue and her friends at the JCC. It was about this family and this marriage over many years. And so, you know, I think it's fine for a writer to think they know where they're going, but you better be wrong. Because if there's no surprise for the writer, there's no surprise for the reader. And so eventually the, the book took its own course. Wow. So what was it about this particular story that over eight years you felt compelled to keep like digging in and shifting and changing and sculpting? Like, what was it? What wouldn't leave you alone? So, I mean, ultimately it's the characters. Um, you know, I think about fiction in terms of character. You know, my goal is to make the characters as rich and complicated as possible and to get them into trouble. You know, to me, that's what fiction is, is, you know, getting your characters into trouble. But I think specifically, you know, I was interested in what it's like for Prue, you know, who is very intelligent and accomplished woman of a certain age who was on her way to a career in academia. And then she gave it all up. And, you know, that was quite common in those days. It you know, still happens now, but I was interested in that phenomenon of what it's like to hitch your wagon to a star and what happens when the star fades. And I was much more interested in telling it from her perspective rather than Spence's. You know, it's obvious what happens to Spence Mm -hmm. when his star fades. He starts to become less lucid. But what's it like for Prue, his wife, who's really identified with his success, who might even, you could argue, is over-identified with his success. And what happens when his success leaves him? What does that do to the wife? How does she refashion herself? in a world and in a life that she hadn't anticipated. I thought one of the more telling scenes was when his book was due and due and due and due. And she finally was like, all right, why don't I help you write it? 
like, let me do it. And he's like, oh, you can do that. And she's like, I, I was a graduate student. And he's kind of like, oh, (laughs) he's forgotten that. And, you know, of course, you know, the world is littered with, you know, famous professors whose graduate students are doing their work for them. And so, yeah, Prue in a moment of desperation hopes to be able to write his book. But it's been, at this point, it's been 30 years since she's been in graduate school. And so she can't do it either. And so they're kind of helpless together. They're really, you know, they're attached to the hip. Well, I think one of the things that was particularly moving was how, from such a detailed perspective, you showed us the decline, right? Having, I don't have, I haven't experienced Alzheimer's myself, but now with this book, you see it, you see, I mean, it's one thing to see it in a movie, right? Like Ask Alice or whatever, is that what it was called? It was so good with them. Anyway, so you see the signs, but here it was much more, it's like you're actually living with it. Right. So like the night where he wanders off barefoot or the little things that happen at home or when he falls or like when, you know, like just all these little tiny moments that add up to the end result being like in a totally different state. But it's like the heartbreak of the smaller moments, I feel like, that you captured. Yeah. I mean, thank you, Zabi. And I do feel like in life and in fiction, it's the small moments that are most interesting. And sometimes the big moments are so big that they come predigested in a certain way. So it's not that you don't want to focus on the big moments too. I mean, you know, there's a scene where Ben's forced to take a mini mental exam up at Columbia Presbyterian and it becomes apparent how much he has declined. And there's also a scene when Prue meets with the head of the English department who tells her that, you know, he can't continue teaching. But in some ways I'm interested in the sort of the more surprising small moments. For instance, there's a scene early in his decline when there's a mouse in the apartment yes. and Spence wants to ca- catch that mouse with his own two hands, which is very uncharacteristic of him. It's not the sort of thing he's prone to do and he's not a person of physical prowess, but obviously it's too painful for him to acknowledge his mental decline. And so he kind of shifts things mm-hmm. onto matters physical and, you know, runs around the apartment trying to catch the mouse with his own two hands. And so those, it's those small unexpected moments that I think are revealing about character you know, both in life and in fiction. But then he does notice when the mouse goes away, he, he quickly figures out like why that happened, how Prue had done it, what what happened with the trap. He's like, you know, he, he wasn't one to be fooled necessarily. For sure. And I think, yeah, I think that captures something about dementia, something about Alzheimer's, how, you know, one second the person is totally incoherent and the next second they're lucid, next second they're incoherent again. You know, it's a, Obviously, it's a, it's a steep decline over time, but moment to moment, there can be real moments of insight amongst the confusion. And when the clinical trial happened and there was like a temporary, there was hope for a moment and then it was, you know, short-lived. It was also heartbreaking, right. like access to that person and then it's like out of your fingers. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it, it is a heartbreaking disease. And, you know, and that's, I think that's one of the challenges of writing a novel about Alzheimer's is, you know, I tell my graduate students that they shouldn't write a story about a ball rolling down a hill because the ball's going to roll down the hill. And so I think that's what Alzheimer's is like in terms of the actual medical prognosis is that unfortunately, you know, at this point, hopefully that will change, but at this point there's no cure. But I think so one of the challenges of writing a book about this is to not really make it be specifically about the disease course, but about how different people around the patient react to the disease Mm -hmm. course. What choices do they make? Do they enroll the person in, in, in clinical trials? Do they, does Prue end up in a new love affair? I mean, these are the kinds of questions that I think, you know, face people who are dealing with someone who is in decline. And so I was very interested in the, 
and the non-bull rolling down the hill parts of the book. I did not see coming what happened also with, well, I don't want to give things away, but the way even things that you might take up to make yourself feel better don't necessarily work out the way you want. <laughs> right. They don't. Although sometimes that sounded so do. obvious. That sounded so obvious. Yeah. But yes, but in the short term, right? There is heart there are minor heartbreaks along the way as well. For sure. And I yeah, I agree with me. And I think that that's kind of why I wrote this book over so many decades. I mean the book takes place over so many decades is because, you know, I'm interested in the modulation of emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, in the you know, in the happiness among, you know, amidst the sadness, in the humor, amidst the heartbreak. I mean, I feel like this book, even though it's about a tough topic, it's not a depressing book. And I feel like, you know, you leave the book with some sense of hope for Prue. And, you know, people can't be depressed for forever and ever, hopefully. And so that was very important to me is, you know, injecting moments of levity, even in situations that are that are tough. And I feel like Prue herself is kind of a tough character. And she's resilient and her resilience gets tested and she proves herself up to the task, I'd say. Well, the whole trajectory of the chock full of nuts to the Chinese food restaurant, I mean, it like gives you, it just like gives me chills, right? I felt, I really felt like I went on this whole ride with her and I like didn't really want it to end, right? Like what happens next? And also all the supporting characters too, right? The son and that whole side drama and his dyslexia, I found super interesting and the daughter wanting to become a doctor, Sarah, and Ginny, and Ray. I mean, there it's like everybody sort of works together, like all the ripples. How did, does she become a doctor out of like this need to control? Okay, we can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life 360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use. So I got it. And now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you. And it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a 100 times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and it makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life 360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life 360. Visit life360.com or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. I don't know. I just found it. Yeah, I think those are all good questions. I mean, yeah, as I said, I'm really interested in character and in the, you know, and in trying to write about many different characters, you know, all tethered to this one man. And I'm also, I was also interested in writing about New York. You know, I grew up in Morningside Heights 
And I feel like New York City is a character in the novel. You know, you mentioned you're on the Upper East Side. I grew up on the Upper West Side, and I'm older than you. And I grew up at a time when I, I, grew, I went to school on the Upper East Side, and but I grew up on the Upper West Side. I went to school on and the I, Upper West Side. But I grew up on the Upper I would have, I, also, I saw you in the transverse or something. Yeah, we passed each other on the Crosstown bus. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think I was, although this wasn't conscious, because, you know, Flannery O'Connor once said that I, the, a writer can't do without a certain measure of stupidity. And I think that's true. And, you know, some of us come by naturally <laughs> and others have to cultivate it. But I felt like I was chronicling a change in a neighborhood in a way that was parallel to my chronicling a change in a man, in a character. You know, I grew up at a time when there were really meaningful distinctions between the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side. I was sort of the poor child of academics among my rich classmates who were the children of professionals. I mean, now there are still differences between the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side, but they're much more nuanced. And the city has changed a lot over the past, you know, 50 years. And so I think I was really writing about a city, even as I was also writing about people. I should amend what I said. I went to high school on the Upper West Side, but I went to grade school on the Upper East Side. And so most of my friends at my, you know, all girls private school on the East Side lived on the East Side. But I did have a friend on the Upper West Side. And whenever I went to visit her, we would have to go to the garage and my mom would take out the car. And I thought that the West Side was like a hundred, like, it was like going to Connecticut. We're like, we're going to the West Side. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how my classmates felt. Their parents didn't want them coming to the, to the West Side. I, I was always the visiting team when it came to <laughs> play dates. I was always going to the East Side. So did you go to Chapin? Is that that school that you went to? I went to, to Brearley. The Brearley? Yeah. Where did you, my mom. Did you go to Collegiate? I went to Ramaz. Oh, okay. But I went to college with a lot of collegiate boys and Brearley girls. And my mother had three, I mean, I have, I have two brothers. My mother had three boys, but she always had a dream of having a girl because she wanted that girl to go to Brearley. So none of us felt, you know, we would have had to sort of dress up as girls and like, <sighs> go undercover at Brearley. So it never happened. But she, my mom was kind of obsessed with Brearley. It's like Yentl. In reverse or something. Well, I have two boys and two girls, and none of them went to Burley. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. It's important for kids to do different things from what their parents do. Yes, exactly. So then how did you end up becoming a writer and a professor? Like just how did you get to where you are? Yeah, so it's kind of a coincidental and sort of circuitous route. You know, I was heading down a more traditional academic path. My father was a professor, and so... You know, I'm probably the only person on the planet who thought that, you know, getting a PhD in the humanities was a safe path. <laughs> I am. I, I kind of always wanted to be a writer, but I also wanted to play in the NBA. Oh, okay. And at a certain point, you know, you realize you're neither good enough nor tall enough. <laughs> I was going to say you're sitting down. I can't tell, but I, you don't strike yeah, no, me I'm, as like 6'5", but who knows? I'm 5'11". I, I was actually captain of the Ramaz basketball team, but that says much more about the Ramaz basketball <laughs> team, my own basketball playing abilities. But anyhow, yeah, I was planning to be to get a PhD in the humanities. But before I did that, I took what I thought would be a couple of years off and I moved out to Berkeley after I graduated from college. And, you know, I think the reason for that is this, you know, I was born in 1964 and I grew up in the shadows of, of Columbia. And so my first conscious memory was being taken to nursery school, to the greenhouse nursery school by my mother in 1968 and being turned back at the gates by the student protest. And so that oh, wow. was my version of a snow day. <laughs> <laughs> so when I graduated, I think I was the kind of kid who always felt like I'd sort of missed the 60s. And so and I think if you think Columbia is good, if you're obsessed with the 60s, then you think Berkeley is even better. So when I graduated from college, 
I moved out to Berkeley, really not knowing anyone. I slept on the floor of a friend of a friend, and I found a, an apartment in Berkeley, and I got a job at a magazine. And one of my tasks at the magazine was to be the first reader of fiction manuscripts. And I saw how terrible a lot of them were, and I, and I thought, well, if other people were willing to try to risk failure, then I should be willing to try and risk failure too. And I mean, it wasn't like I thought I could necessarily do any better, but I thought, you know, you want to give it a shot. And so I started to take some workshops, and I got some encouragement, and I moved to Ann Arbor, to Michigan, where I got my MFA, and the rest is history. But I say all that as a way of illustrating that, you know, there are writers who are, you know, more instinctive writers than I am, more naturally intuitive, whereas I had to teach myself how to be an intuitive writer. And that seems like an oxymoron. What does it mean to teach yourself to be intuitive? But I think it's true. You know, the late David Foster Wallace, who in addition to being a great writer, was also a serious amateur tennis player, once did an interview with Roger Federer for the Times Magazine, and Federer talked about learned intuition, how you hit the tennis ball over and over and over again until what you're first doing mechanically becomes much more instinctive. And I think that's what I was doing with writing. You know, I read really carefully. I saw the craft, you know, decisions that writers made that I thought worked and that I thought didn't work. And I basically taught myself to become more intuitive. And so teaching has really been, you know, an instrumental part of my writing life. I have friends who are writers who wouldn't begin to know how to teach. But for me, it's really essential. I think it's in part because I'm a relatively social person, but also because I feel like, you know, 30 years later after I started doing this, I'm still teaching and still writing, and I learned as much from my students as they learned from me. You know, a psychoanalyst friend of mine talks about the analyst and the patient being in the pool together. The analyst is not, you know, sitting at the side of the pool watching the patient flail. And I think that's true of the writing teacher as well. My students and I are all in the pool together. We're all flailing together. We're all struggling with the same things. And although, although it's true that I've been doing this longer than they have, I'm more experienced at this. The page is just as blank for me as it is for them. And we're all, you know, struggling with the same issues. So I feel that teaching writing is an instrumental part of my own, you know, experience as a writer and helps my writing a lot. Mm. My husband was in the professional tennis world. So I've given him like five separate copies of String Theory by David Foster Wallace. We have it like everywhere. So I'm like, I'm like uh-huh. this is a blending. This is a blend of our interest here. But anyway. Great novel by the British writer Brett Benjamin Markowitz, which is about the tennis tour. It takes over a place over a single weekend. Huh. I'm forgetting the name of it. But I don't know if your husband reads fiction, but if he does, he'd be interested or maybe you'd be interested vicariously. I'll, 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 I'll find the book and I'll, I'll email you. My husband doesn't really read that much. Tennis? Oh, you've got a dog. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, uh-huh. I, have a dog. I, I have a big black dog, too. You do? I have a Newfoundland. Oh, yeah. All 125 pounds. It <laughs> looks like you have a lab. I have a black lab. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, I, first of all, I like want to go take your class. Do you ever offer like classes to not people who are like enrolled? I, yeah. You know, I used, I used to teach in the 92nd Street Y. I mean, I had some amazing classes there. You know, one of the things about New York is that, you know, if you're living in Arkansas or Idaho, and you're teaching an MFA program, you're really the only game in town. Whereas in New York, there are all sorts of opportunities to take, you know, really high-level writing workshops that are not affiliated with MFA programs. And I, you know, I was once teaching at the Y at the same time as I was teaching at Sarah Lawrence. And I would say my class at the Y was as strong as, maybe even stronger than my MFA class at Sarah Lawrence. I had some amazing writers there. And you get a real diversity of experiences. You get people who, you know, who can't spend full time in a program but we're happy to come once a week and who have interesting lives. You know, I had people in their 70s and people in their 20s. So I, I did used to do that. Unfortunately, I don't do that any longer, really, to my own writing. 
and running my own MFA program. There's no time for me to teach <laughs> for my MFA students. So I occasionally do writing conferences, but in general, the only people I teach these days are graduate students at Brooklyn College. Wow. Okay. Well, I missed my moment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, one piece of parting advice that everybody can use. What what advice would you have, aspiring authors? Aspire. I didn't know if meant like advice to humans. Oh, I mean, if you have human advice, I'll take it. But I meant for aspiring authors. I take it a dog. No, advice aspiring authors. I would say treat it like a job. Don't wait for inspiration. You know, there's work that's inspired and that there's work that's uninspired, but I don't think it correlates to how you're feeling when you're writing. Sometimes when I'm feeling most inspired, the work I produce is the worst because I fall in love with the sound of my own voice. Whereas when I'm feeling uninspired, I sometimes produce better work. You know, we tell our grad students at Brooklyn College that we want them to be writing 18 hours a week, three hours a day, six days a week. And I make my students keep, you know, keep a log of how many, how many hours and minutes they write each day. And then at the end of the week in workshop, they, you know, they tell us their minutes and they, they, they do it anonymously. And not everyone gets to 18 hours, but we all try. And, you know, there are people who count words and there are people who count time. And I'm a believer in counting time because I feel like time is neutral. That all you can do, you know, sometimes you write three hours and you produce five words and sometimes you write three hours and you produce 10 pages. But I feel like those five-word days are investments in those 10-page days. And as I said before, time is neutral. That all you can ask of yourself is to put in that time day in and day out. And hopefully, if you treat it like a job, you know, there are no guarantees, but hopefully what you produce will eventually, after eight years and 3,000 pages, work. So as much as the people can demystify writing and treat it like employment, mm-hmm. like you put on your hard hat, you tie yourself to your seat, and you, you know, you type away at your computer or you do it by hand, however you write to keep track of those, those hours and minutes. I tell my students to keep track of the amount of time they spend on the internet. <laughs> and because it's amazing how much time you can spend not writing. And I want them, we, we all fool ourselves. And so I guess I encourage myself and, our, and others to, to not fool yourselves and to, to put in the time and ask nothing more of yourself. Love it. Well, maybe in another eight years when you write your next book, you can come back on the show and maybe maybe you'll shave off a year in time. Who knows? Maybe you'll do it in seven. You know, I hope so. I'm hoping to become more efficient. And some of my earlier books took fewer than eight years. So, I mean, I'm not going to be Joyce Carol Oates writing a book a year, but I, my hope is I can write a book in three to five years. So whenever, whenever that time is, I would be thrilled to come back because I really enjoyed talking oh, to you. Oh, you too. And I really, really loved your book. I mean, it was so Thank good. You. I wish I'd read it earlier. But anyway, I read it now. <laughs> Thank you. And good luck with your, with your new publishing. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 